Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Jack, Jack Rocco. Um, and uh, welcome to the show, Jack. Looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Simon. I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah. So um, I was Googling Jack again before we spoke today, and I found uh, there's a singer from the West Coast of the States, from Anaheim, which is near Disneyland, I think, if I can remember rightly. Um, and uh, and I thought, that isn't the Jack Rocco that I, I'm looking to Google. Um, maybe he's got his son doing a song for him or something, but no. Jack, Jack is, you're in, in between house, um, a house move from the, where, where did you say it was from? Uh, North I mean, Carolina to, yeah, I'm in North Carolina, moving to Connecticut in the process yeah. right now. And, and promoting the bejesus out of your book at the same time. So, and, right. and you're in a juggle little, more, juggle multiple, multiple balls in the stuff. air. Yeah. And you're also an orthopedic surgeon. Right. So, so that's, that's a very serious thing. We're not going to be doing much juggling with when we're an orthopedic surgeon. So um, one of the things that I saw on the blurb for your book, um, and it's an incredible cover, right? I love the, uh, love the, uh, the, the, the cover and, and the, and the title recycled. Um, but it, it says that recycled is a, a powerful reflection on how identity is shaped by the stories we believe about ourselves. And uh, uh, there's so much there, right? Um, you've got the identity bit, and then you've got the belief bit. And, and, and I, it's, become, it's come on my radar, Jack, that we talk a lot about trauma in the adoptee world, but we don't talk much about beliefs. And, and and for me, that's significant because beliefs are something we can bust. They seem more actionable, it, just in my opinion, than trauma, which tra trauma seems like something that's kind of tough to shift and we're going to need help. But beliefs seem somehow to me to be a little bit more easily changed, easily busted. What, what would you say to that? Do you see that? Yeah, I, I, I like your um, I like your insight into that uh, that concept and that thought. And I think, you know, the book, just as much as I created the book, I think the book also happened to me as well. And, you know, I do struggle with that idea of trauma, you know, that, you know, the the victimhood um, concept that kind of comes with that, you know, that um and also in my career, I mean, I deal with trauma, physical trauma every day, you know, physical trauma, which also generates, you know, mental trauma and stress. Um, and you're right that, you know, the idea of trauma as something that happens to you is one thing. Um, but then I also like, you know, with the idea of nature, nurture, free will, the nurture part of things, you know, I think more of training. You know, when I when I hear when I hear nurturing, I think and, and the things that I that I cover in the book, you know, I cover my schooling, I cover my residency, I cover my military training. And there's also, you know, some athletic training, which can be traumatic as well. Um, so how do you divide that? What is training? What is, you know, working on yourself to be better? 
versus trauma, which occurs to you in a harmful way. And, and I think I kind of come to the terms that, you know, the trauma is something that happens to you from an outside force, whereas the tra training is something that comes from within you, you know, focused in a direction that you're trying to go. And I'll give you a you know, I'll give you an example. You know, my son is a, is a wrestler and, you know, he's, we're always focused on, you know, his training and, you know, the things he learns. And if he loses, you know, he didn't lose, he learned, you know, you, you learn from your losses, you learn from it. And at what point, you know, does it transfer over from training to trauma? And I think it does have a lot to do with control. You know, like we didn't necessarily have control over our birth history, our adoption history. But at some point, you know, whether it's whether you come out of the fog where you realize, OK, now I have some opportunity here, some free will decisions that I can make to turn this trauma into training in a positive direction. And I I, I try to maintain, you know, some positivity throughout you know, the book in my experience. Yeah. Uh, have you heard the term post-traumatic growth? Uh, I, I, I can't say I've particularly heard that, that uh, phrase, but I can understand it. And I, I, I like the concept. Yeah. Maybe you can explain a little more of exactly what you're, what you mean. Well, it, it, it is, this, it, it's a three letter uh, acronym for what you just described i think um and i think it's very it's a very interesting one for me because it is a term that some uh psychologists psychiatrists psycho something that guys use uh it is the use but I, when i've asked anybody about that they haven't heard about it either right it, it's we have uh I, I think we have a negative lens in the in the western world uh generally speaking culturally speaking whether that's uk or us and um we we we're, we're focused very much we're focused very much on the the ptsd rather than the ptg because that's the way that we are uh our are conditioned by society so what i mean by that is like there's there's a sign isn't it um if it, in, this is in the newspaper world, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Uh, there's there's no such thing. There's no such thing as 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 good news. We want to scare the bejesus out of people um, to to get them to read our newspaper because there is a clear and present danger going. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I've definitely found that, you know, and. You know, we seem to be similar in a lot of ways that, you know, you've always known you were an adoptee from what I understand. Uh, and I did as well. And, you know, I I was was told and taught, you know, the, the positive aspects of adoption, you know, and we, we focused on the positive. But, you know, you also find out that within the positive, there are just natural negatives, you know, and the positives were all laid upon the feet of my adoptive parents. You know, they chose us. They were selected by the church to be the parents and they're doing a great job. Um, 
and that the the birth parents they were bad somehow you know they were you know negligent they were poor they were ill prepared they were young you know all these terms that that do have negative connotations and i think you you know those were some of my earliest memories and thoughts of the adoption process that there was a good and a bad outcome and thank god I ended up on the good side of things, you know, my parents loved me. I wasn't some, some biological surprise that popped onto their doorstep. You know, they chose me, not some parents who just get a baby because they got pregnant. You know, those were my earliest, you know, childhood thoughts of it. Um, So it was very positive. So then when I started hearing, you know, in the news or from other adoptees about all their trauma, I was a little, you know, at first I was like, really, what, what, what is so traumatic about it? They, you know, what, and then you hear the stories and it, you know, I mean, I was, I was way on the, you know, the positive side of things, but there are clearly negative, you know, negative effects and negative consequences of, of adoption. Um, and like I said, so the, the idea that I had trauma was something I almost denied you know, that I didn't have any trauma. I had a blessed life. I had a very good life. I had no trauma. But then you think about it, you know, that that separation from a mother, I mean, it's in a pre-conscious state before you really observe it. But, you know, that pre-conscious trauma that the child is exposed to, that relinquishment by the mother, that's clearly something that sets them on a course which puts them at higher risk for you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. So it, it you know, trauma is clearly a, a, an element of adoption. Um, but I like your approach. I like your idea of, you know, the thriving adoptee. How do you, yeah, okay, let's face it. We have some trauma. What do we need to do to recover from, from that trauma? You know, if someone's in a traumatic car accident, they go to the emergency room and they see an orthopedic surgeon and he tries to fix that trauma and get them back as close to, you know, a, a functional, normal life. You know, so what do we do as adoptees to deal with this trauma and recover from this trauma in a positive way? So I, 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 I do like that approach, and I, I commend you for, for taking that approach. Uh, I, I guess because I, it's just because I dipped, right? So I, I was okay, and then, and then I wasn't okay, and then I had to dig myself out. So, and 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 then some of my beliefs shifted. So, and and some of my trauma shifted with with those with those beliefs. Um, uh, My my question to you was on that because of this beliefs thing. What what were the beliefs that 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 shifted for you? The you know what were the what were the beliefs that you had about yourself that changed as you came out of the fog weather yeah you know i mean my you know like i said some of mine was that i had no trauma i had a blessed life you know my beliefs were that you know my birth parents were somehow bad and that my adoptive parents were somehow good but then as i started seeing some of the the negative aspects of it same thing that you said you know i had difficulties with my marriage um you know and looking back i probably had a lot of difficulties with you know, finding my place, if you will, you know, my, my story goes through a lot of, 
you know, a lot of changes, a lot of journeys, you know, going to military, going to the military. I was in Japan. Then we had mission trips in Madagascar. So, you know, I was always looking for something. And, you know, my beliefs that I had this perfect life, I think, changed dramatically to the point that I'm like, you know what? I I was under a lot of stress and 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 uh, hardship in trying to just figure out me, you know. So once I once I kind of came to terms with that, you know, it took me on a lot of different a lot of different courses. Unfortunately, I, I don't have a direct straight linear path like most people. You know, it was it was spurts and fits and you know good things and bad things and and you know looking for the positive, but. You know, um, you know, I my big, you know, genetic surprise, if you will, is, you know, a mixed race. Um, you know, I have a mi mixed race heritage. And, you know, to you know, I grew up in an era where, you know, my parents were very proud of their Italian heritage. And my father used to say, you know, there's two types of people in this world, Italians and those who wish they were, huh. you know, and that's a very, you know, they're proud of their, they were proud of their ethnicity and their food and their culture and. Michelangelo and all things Italian, um, which is fine. They should be proud of those things. But, you know, what I later realized is that I'm one of those others who are not Italian. Even though I was raised in Italian, I was one of those who wasn't and who, quote unquote, wanted to be, you know. So, you know, and, and then the, the idea of, well, does this make my parents racist that they knew of my ethnicity but didn't want to tell them, tell me about it? Does this make my parents racist? You know, because that's a word that's thrown around a lot as well. Um, and I kind of come to, you know, not to not, not really giving away an ending or anything, but, you know, there's different elements, you know, different ranges of racism and racist behavior. And I think we all, to a certain degree, have some element of racism. You know, you look at someone who looks like you. And you're like, that's a good guy right there. He looks just like me. He's someone I can trust. He's someone I know. You know, and if that person is your relative, if that person is your father, you're like, oh, yeah, I look just like my father. My father's good. I'm good. We're good. And anyone who's not us is not good or suspect. They have to prove themselves to get into our little circle. And I think we all do that. I think, you know, it gets thrown on on race. but you know, blacks have done it over the over the centuries and generations with, you know, are they light, you know, a light skinned black versus a dark skinned black? Are they, you know, and there, there was a thing called the, the brown paper bag test where, you know, you couldn't get into a black group if your skin was lighter than a brown paper bag. You know, so these are things that were overtly, you know, used to determine someone's, you know, right to belong or right of goodness versus badness, you know, and I think the thing that I've really changed in my belief, you know, is that there really is no definition of good or bad, per se. It's just different, you know, and over the years, I've, you know, I mean, I, I spent time in Japan where, you know, I assimilated with the Japanese culture, you know, very much in depth. Um, and as I got closer to them, I realized that, you know, they're not bad. Their food is not bad. They're people like everyone else. They're just living in a different circumstance. So, you know, my beliefs have become more 
more open and more broad to, you know, understanding humans as a whole, not necessarily individualistic as a country, as a Brit, as a German, as a Japanese, you know, and, and, and it's opened my, my mind to, you know, I think many more possibilities of goodness, just differences. Okay. Can I, can I take you back to the, the, the top of the conversation when you talked about trauma being something that happened to us, right? And, and there's also this sense that um, trauma, well, the, 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 the one that everybody, the book that everybody quotes is this Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk book, a book saying that, that the body's, body keeps the score, the body knows the score. And, and the fact that so this this trauma is not just an event that happened to us in, in, in the past, so in my case, 56 years ago, but it's something that is remembered by the cells of our body and 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 therefore it's uh, it, it's wait this stuff is waiting to be triggered um and and so uh, and 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 when when it's triggered we're going to explode in a in a in a small way or a, or a or a big way what's what's your take on that yeah i do believe it you know i was I was a neuroscience major in undergrad. So I, I have a fairly extensive understanding of, you know, the brain and neural development. Um, you know, that was something in my early training. And I think it's something that's affected me my whole life. And I mean, you can use the example of, you know, the simplest one is, you know, Pavlov and his dog. You know, that if you ring a bell and you deliver food, or you find a, a trigger to, you know, to cause him that every time you ring the bell now, he will salivate whether the food is there or not. You know, and there's all sorts of examples of that. You know, I did some some research and work in addiction. And, you know, it's very interesting with addiction that what we did was we changed the environment in which the addiction took place. And there is definitely there is an environmentally associated trigger that stimulates your ability to metabolize the drug. And, you know, I'll give you an example, like if someone's a smoker. You know, a lot of times they'll smoke after eating or smoke after or during an activity, you know, so that activity that they're doing, if they're eating, their liver is already anticipating the fact that they will be getting nicotine soon. You know, if they smoke every time after they eat, their liver is learning. So their liver, your liver doesn't have a brain. The liver doesn't think, but the liver acts as though it is thinking. You know, whether that be neurologically mediated or hormonally mediated or environmentally mediated, the act of them sitting down, their liver starts forming enzymes to metabolize nicotine so that when they get the nicotine, they're already metabolizing it right away. So they don't get that same hit. So they need more nicotine to get the same effect. And um, so I think that's true with, you know, any experience. If you had a traumatic experience of someone leaving you, so, you know, for instance, you know, and you had a tragic re reaction to that, like a physical bodily reaction to that, that relinquishment, that now 50 years later, 30 years later, after that maternal relinquishment, you're in a situation that is very similar to that. You're in a situation where you may be moving. You're in a situation where, you know, your relationship may be struggling so that you start reacting to that environmental cue 
as if you're being relinquished again by the mother, you know, that there's a learned reaction there that um, is very understandable from, you know, from the, from the psychologic standpoint. And, um, you know, what we did with the, what we did with the nicotine, you know, we, we um, basically got rats addicted to nicotine over a period of time. And we put them through a process where we'd weigh them and then take that weight and determine the amount of nicotine to give them. And then on the test day, we didn't do the weighing. We just gave them the same dose that they had before. So these were animals that developed an, a tolerance to nicotine that at 30 days, they had complete, you know, no reaction to nicotine. All right. So they are completely addicted, completely tolerant of nicotine. So now on the 31st day, we just took them out and gave them the same dose without the warning of being weighed. And these rats went back to having zero tolerance for nicotine. Some of the rats seized, some of them, you know, twitched, you know, they, they, they passed out, um, you know, so they had lost all their tolerance just because we changed the environment. And it's a little difficult to go through, you know, the details of the research on, on a podcast here, but it was remarkable you know, without the environmental cue, they had lost all their addiction. And, you know, that's when a lot of times may where, where an overdose may occur. You know, the, the rumors were that like John Belushi, when he passed away, you know, his girlfriend administered the drugs to him. So he didn't have the, the pre-warning that he was about to receive the drug. And they believe it was that lack of environmental cues that led to his overdose. Yeah. So what what can we learn from that in the uh, the adductee world and, uh, and 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 this trauma. yeah I think yeah I think if you say that the body remembers I would say yes it does I would say your brainstem your fundamental organs you know in your body do remember but I think through therapy through understanding that hey you know what I'm in a situation where I'm moving my situation is stressed right now I may be encountering a trigger reaction to a lot of these things. So I do believe that the body does remember, uh, quote unquote, remember, you know, it reacts to stress your body, you know, that you're designed to react to stress for survival. And if you know that you were in a, a traumatic experience, the next time you're in a similar experience, you you have to defend yourself in a way. But sometimes that that is and, you know, that is advantageous. And I think in other in other ways, it may be detrimental. Yeah. So the the two key things that I'm getting from that is is that the understanding uh, uh, the, the understanding takes you some way a, a a rational level understanding takes you takes you so far and and then a change in the um, a change in your environment might again take you a little bit further or that might take you somewhere and also uh, the, the 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 therapy stuff so um, probably something that's uh, somatic or, or or one of those, like because it's pre-verbal. Because it's pre-verbal, <laughs> we can't talk it out because we don't have any. We 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 didn't have words when we were going through the trauma. Um, we didn't have any concepts. We we couldn't speak when we had the, that that trauma. So what what good? Uh, this is something that I got from one of the um, a, a, a clinician that we had on the show last week. Um, talk therapy sometimes doesn't work for pre-verbal trauma 
because pre-verbal trauma, no words. If you've got no words for it, how are you supposed to talk it out when talk is basically words? So you've got to do something slightly different or totally different. So there's three bits there. The understanding, the uh, the understanding, the change of the environment, um, and uh, and the third one is this therapy bit. Uh, I've got an, another question for you that fascinates me, and I, I've played around with this. I'd love to hear your your take on it. There's so we we've got this uh, feeling of relinquishment. We've we've had there has been this uh, event, and there's a, a a feeling of fear. Fear of the unknown, right? So, how how does that how does that loss, that sense of loss, which is a felt thing, how does that become a belief and the central belief as amongst us uh, adoptees is the fact that there's something wrong with us? We we're not good at at some level. How does a physical thing become a mental construct? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with the adoptee in particular, I mean, I do believe that that early relinquishment, that fact that, you know, you know, that and I, I love Paul Sunderland's uh, lecture, if you've not heard that on addiction and, and adoption. And he covers a lot of it, but I, I it really spoke to me that I do believe that early relinquishment sets things up that that is your reality. Your reality is you're going to have to deal with this world on your own. You know, you have this mother, you have this ally in the womb that you bond to during that pre-birth era, you know, where you're, she's you, that you are one in the same. You are, you are the, you know, she is your soil. You are the sprout, you know, and then all of a sudden at birth, your first exposure to the dry air of the world, you're doing it on your own. You know, you don't go back to the mother to suckle. You don't have that constant bonding and development of a, you know, extra womb relationship with this mother. You know, that's someone you can go to. That's someone you can go to for food, for warmth, for comfort, for clean diapers. You know, that person that you rely on, you know, intimately, the adoptee doesn't have when they're relinquished early. So I believe that adoptee is just, you know, like you say, pre-verbally, they don't understand it. They don't have another understanding of the world. Their world is alone. Their world will always be alone. They will not have their mother. They have to find others, but that other is still not them. You know, that there's, you know, your adoptive parents, your surrogate parents, are, it's not the same. Those are an outsider, you know? So I think that that, you know, that belief, that that trauma of being relinquished provide you with a belief that you're going to have to do a lot of this on your own. And I think a lot of adoptees are, you know, just, you know, they struggle with relationships because they don't trust people. They don't, you know, they, they can't healthily go to someone else for, for help or assistance. They feel like they have to do it on their own, which is either, you know, very lonely and very failing or just, you know, is, is a recipe for, getting yourself in trouble if you can't go to other people for help in the world yeah so 
the 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 fascinating point, and I agree with all that. Oh yeah, I have listened to that Paul Sunderland video, and um, I'm trying to get a guy on the show actually who has a completely different take on PTSD. Um, so uh, fingers crossed. We're just trying to get him in the uh, in the um, in the in the schedule. And he's done a uh, he's done an excellent interview around this, which I'm gonna I'm gonna link in the show notes. So uh, because I think yeah. it, it's a different take to PTSD. Because um, you know uh, Paul Sunderland um, in that video he likens CPTSD complete complex C, complex post traumatic stress disorder with adoption trauma. The the thing for the thing for me. And I'm, and I'm not sure whether I'm being nitpicky or not. I, in my world, I'm not. So if I'm being nitpicky, just tell me, right? One is an experience. Okay, we've got an experience. How does the experience become a belief? So it's it's not, it, it, it's, it, it sounds to me like there's some mental scaffolding going on. So in the sense, I, I take this like, so... Um, a, a it's a bit like a, how an avalanche starts right so we've got some somewhere on, along the line a question we ask ourselves a question um why did why did she relinquish me okay and from that asking ourselves that question we come up with a plausible answer like there's something wrong with me, and that that is the um, uh, that is a, a, a p a p of information, a, a, a p of a thought. Like to think about it. That's that's too. So in neuros, I don't know what you would call that in neural, uh, in in neuroscience. Would you say that that's uh, it, that's that's a that's a two? What did it say? What fires together? wires together that you're right yeah yeah and i would say that you know the idea of you know you say we ask ourselves a question you know when you're in that pre-verbal phase you're not really wow. complex enough to answer ask yourself a question so you're basically going on stimulus response you know the stimulus is you're born the response is okay what do i where do i go for food what do i you know i need food Okay, instead of a mother that you recognize and have a relationship with, you see a nurse who has a bottle. Okay, and then you see another nurse that has a bottle. Then you see another nurse. Then you see a nun who has a bottle. Then you see, you know, you're seeing a bunch of different people in your lives who can give you food. You know, I mean, let's use that as an example. You know, simple, you know, the natural state is you get your food from your mother. You get your nourishment from your mother. You get your comfort from your mother. Well, when you don't have a mother, and it could be, you know, I, I wonder how similar like children whose parents die in birth, you know, a mother who's, who, who dies in birth, if that child has any of the characteristics of an adoptee, you know, and, you know, do they feel this this need for for being so self-sufficient, you know, that that, you know, one of my friends, Brad Yule, he says, you know, he was very, you know, rugged individualist, Texas sergeant bomb squad leader you know tough guy you know and he said if i was on fire i would rather go get my own bucket of water than ask anyone for help and i do think that 
you know, some of that characteristic of being independent or lonely, I think they, they come together, you know, for adoptees that, you know, so the stimulus is loneliness and the, and the, 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 the response is, well, I need to survive. What do I have to do to survive? Do I have to scream? Do I have to be cute? Do I have to be loving? Do I have to be funny? You know, and it's a trial and error, I think, over this pre-verbal phase. It's like, oh, wait, if I smile and cuddle, they'll give me food. I mean, you know, we do this with animals. You know, we train animals that way. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we're no different. We're much more complex, but some of the basics are very similar. So we learn to be a people pleaser. You know, that if I'm if I'm friendly and, and pleasant and smile and joke and giggle, People will give me love and attention and food and warmth and shelter. You know, that there's a there's a um, if then statement. There's a, you know, know, a commodity and there's a price for that commodity. I want love. I'll give a smile and I'll get love. You know, whereas I think, you know, the idea of unconditional love that you receive ideally from your mother um, isn't there. So there is no unconditional love. Everything is conditional with you. And I think adoptees, you know, I mean, I, I think even myself, you know, that, that, um, you know, life has a condition with my son and my daughter, there's no condition. I love them whether they win or lose, you know, they're happy or sad. You know, there's that, I, I get them. I understand them. I bond with them without even having to try. I look at their face and I know what they're thinking. There's a connection there. There's a familiarity in the way we speak, the way we act and talk and joke and think you know, that I immediately like them because they're like me, you know, whereas, you know, the adoptee doesn't have that, those genetic mirrors that they immediately bond to or that family that they immediately feel one with. So there is this conditional thing. Like if I make them happy, I'll get what I need. But then you also expect that from other people. Well, shouldn't they do what I want for me to give their love? And it doesn't always work that way. So I think there's, you definitely set, you're set up for disappointment and for loneliness, I think, as an adoptee, because of those, just those initial, the, the initial rules that you were, you were born into. You were born into the fact that I've got to be cute. I've got to be loud. I've got to be noisy. I got to be something in order to get something that I need for survival. There's a, there's a cost to your survival that you have to figure out. There's not that immediate, oh, he's so cute, I love him, regardless of what he says or does. Yeah. That makes sense? It does. So um, what you what we're talking about here, um, the, 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 I, I had it down, like the, tr- the, the trauma becomes a belief. And mm-hmm. you're saying, no, the, 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 the trauma doesn't, come the belief the trauma is the dominant force because it's all pre-verbal the kind of the belief that i'm, I'm not good enough is 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 se- kind of separate well, from that or a, yeah, or a I, think player. It, I think it's directly i can say it's directly related or a result of the trauma you know the trauma results in you being alone the tra- trauma results in you not having a mother you know so that's so that because you don't have a mother your belief is I'm not going to just be loved because I'm loved. I have to earn love, you know? So I, I would, you know, I think I could make that leap of, you know, you have a mother, your mother's going to love you, you know, 
She yeah. just loves you. Matter. You know, whereas, you know, you're left by your mother. Now you have to find people who love you for something you provide them. Okay. It, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, a transactional relationship. So this is perhaps a, a, a better metaphor um, than if we think of it like an, an iceberg. Okay, so these the, the, the bottom bit that's in, in, invisible is the is the pre-verbal trauma, and the the bit at the top is is the um, the the, the uh, post-verbal rationalization. So I, I've been talking about. I never use that. Why have I used this? Is it because I'm talking to a, a surgeon that I'm raising my game and using posher words? So I, I'm thinking. Well, you're British. That. You're British too, so you you automatically whatever you say sounds smarter because you're a Smart. Brit. That act- oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, you're not. You, but you're not. You, you, you're not complimenting me because you're actually saying it's to do with my race, right? Oh so, no, I'm I'm no, just, just joking. You're pulling, yeah. You're pulling my chain. Um, yeah. So. I'm there's I was seeing cause cause and effect and and uh, perhaps they uh, perhaps I'm oversimplifying it and perhaps they you know me asking a question about I'm not good enough it's does does I'm not good enough. so it, it, I asked a question but maybe I'm asking that subconsciously maybe I'm asking that when I'm when I'm seven or nine and and, and right at the moment actually i'm thinking about the a triggering situation when i was in the rugby team for five years at school right and then i got dropped and i remember turning away and and having a little because boys don't cry and i'm 13 and i don't want the other kids to see me crying the last time i'm going i'm turning away and my, my eyes are uh, and, and i'm and i'm filled up and there's a few sh- because I'm feeling that I'm not good enough, that I've been rejected, mm-hmm. right? So, right. Um, but the, the the kind of uh, the it, it is that those beliefs are sometimes subconscious and 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 sometimes conscious. They come out into light of consciousness, and all the kind of stuff that you're talking about here seems to me like i said it's it's tough stuff to deal with you know so we talked about um understanding it we talked about changing the environment and we talked about therapy as ways to get rid of this stuff right um what what i'm what i'm talking about is perhaps more simple uh less deeply um rooted um uh, beliefs that you you know you kind of you bring them out to the light of awareness. You have a look at them and you see through them, and and, and you you realise that the belief is nothing more than a, a, a thought that's become kind of solid, and um, like like you, you you bring uh, so like when we were you you know you you bring an ice cube out of out of out of your fridge in arizona this wouldn't work in britain because it's never hot enough right but you you bring your um, you you bring your ice cube out of the fridge and it and, and it melts straight away and then it evaporates and there's nothing there that's that's what i think of that's what i think of beliefs 
but maybe I'm oversimplifying it and maybe I'm... No, being... I, I, you know, I mean, I think there are probably beliefs that are, you know, I mean, I believe the sun will come out tomorrow. You know, I mean, I'm pretty justified in that based on my experience, you know, but, you know, another, I believe that, you know, my hair is going to grow back tomorrow. That's really hasn't been, you know, I can believe that if I take this medicine, you know, the placebo effect, if you will, if I believe, you know, what, you know, how do that, that I think that's probably a, you know, a, a, a challenge to those beliefs is like sometimes believing that the medicine is going to work, works. Yeah. You know, the placebo effect, you know, that if I take this pill, I'm going to feel better. So you take the pill and you feel better. So that reinforces your belief, but it's not true. It's just a sugar pill, you know? Um, so there are, I mean, I think, you know, but, but it's, it is a good belief that the sun will come out tomorrow. That's a reasonable belief. So I do think that, you know, the, the, you know, there are true, there are beliefs that are worth, um, believing in, and there are truths that are complete propaganda. I mean, I believe, you know, that I believe that America is the best country because I'm from America. You may believe Britain is the best country because you're from Britain or, you know, any other, you know, yeah. am I wrong or are you wrong? And it's like, it's best for me. It's best for you. You know, so there's, you know, what is the belief of, of bestness or goodness, you know? So, you know, I would think that, you know, the, the adoptee to get back to the, you know, the, the point at hand, you know, the adoptee believing that you can't trust people is somewhat true. It's somewhat true that you can't trust people. You know, if you can't trust your mother who gave birth to you to keep you and take care of you, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty big letdown. You know, someone who, you know, your mother shouldn't relinquish you. That that's just something that should be in our beliefs that your mother's going to take care of you. That should be a fundamental survival given. But the fact that society had told our mothers that you know what, you're not good enough to, you know, she was told she's not good enough. You're not good enough to be a mother. You don't have the right amount of money. You don't have the white, the right relationship with this man. You don't have a lot of things that have made you a failure in the society of, in the eyes of society. You know, so my mother was a failure. That was her belief too. She wasn't married. She was poor. She was a college student. And her and her 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 her, you know, her her sexual partner, her 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 man was African-American. So there were so many there were so many things that she was being told that she's not good. You know, so you can't even you're not even good enough to be a mother. You need to give this baby away. So now this baby has that, you know, is is suffering from those beliefs, you know, which you know, those beliefs were societally based. You know, she was perfectly capable of being a mother. She was perfectly capable of having a relationship with an African-American man. She was perfectly capable of becoming pregnant and raising a child. She was perfectly capable. But society believed that she wasn't. You know, so that society put that belief on her. And she, and she went to her doctor. And her doctor said, yep, you're too young to have a baby and you're not married. You need to go away and give this child away. And the priest said the same thing. And the parents said the same thing. Everybody in her life told her that she needs to go away and have this baby and give it away because she's not a good parent. You know, so that trauma from the birth mother 
naturally carries on to the child. And like I said, if you can't trust your mother to fight against those evils of society and your mother listened to them, not listen to you, you know, I mean, that's painful, yeah. you know, and you know, so that my mother now gave me away. And, you know, fortunately for me, it, it was a good life. It was a good. But had my mother given me to someone who was then abusive, sexually, you know, yeah. uh, you know, abused me. Now I'm doubly or triply, you know, let down. And why should I believe why should I have faith in my mother in society if I can't have faith in my birth mother? my adoptive parents, my job, you know, like these things get reinforced. These beliefs get reinforced that maybe I can't trust people, you know, so that, and that for some people, it might be a good belief to have, you know, but, but then it also has a, a, a you know, the, the, the tail side of that coin is that if you never trust anyone, you're never going to be able to become a useful member of society. You're never going to be able to have a job, have a relationship, have children, you know, so these, these bad beliefs then become reality in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So the trauma does, you know, but there's, there's so many layers of the trauma, you know, from the mother to society, to yourself that, you know, they are clearly related for sure. Uh, how does our belief in our own trauma shape us? Do you believe? Yeah. And I, I you know, like I said, I, I, I say in general that I want to stay positive, but I just gave you a very negative scenario, you know, and that exists as well. And, um, you know, some of the things that I address in, in, you know, on my journey and my, you know, it's like, why is it that my Italian grandfather, you know, came to America was, you know, was discriminated against, had to work hard, you know, didn't have anything given to him. And he was able to succeed, you know, um, because he came here voluntarily. He came here voluntarily with a plan. So, you know, him leaving his home, him, him leaving his homeland, his family, him being alone and isolated and relinquished was his personal choice. So he took it as a challenge. So for me, that is more, you know, that's training. He's going to America to learn the language, to learn the culture, to learn society, to become an American. He's training himself to become an American. And he's proud of that. And that, that was his free will. That was his free will decision to do that. So he looked at it as a positive experience. You know, Jack, this is a beautiful country. You know, there's gold in the streets and all you got to do is get up early and, and you'll succeed. Okay. So now I think I go through my mental, my mental, you know, exercise here. And I was like, what would my black grandfather have said to me? What would my African-American grandfather, I have to imagine what he would have said to me. He would have said a lot of the same things. He would have said, yeah, you're not going to have it easy. You're going to have to struggle. You know, things aren't going to be given to you. You have to fight for them. And on top of it, we didn't choose to come here. We were kidnapped, thrown on a ship, put over here, indentured servants, slaves. We had to fight for our, our rights. And then once we fought for our rights, they changed the laws so that they fought against us again. You know, they had Jim Crow laws and they had, you know, different, you know, so so what's the difference there? There's a, a very similar path between my Italian heritage and struggle and strife 
and my African-American side, it was the voluntary aspect of it. You know, my Italian grandfather voluntarily came here to put himself in a position of trauma. And he relished in that trauma as something that was making him better. Yeah, I'm going through trauma, but I'm going through trauma for my kids, for my kids' kids, for my future, you know, whatever. Whereas the African-American side was, well, we didn't chose, we were just brought here. And I think that's a huge, you know, so it's like, is your trauma, is it self-inflicted, self-desired? You know, my son, he's wrestling. He goes through trauma every day with wrestling. You know what I mean? His coaches yell at him. They want him to do more. They want him to do harder. They want him to do faster. It's trauma. But he's voluntarily doing it. You know, so that's training. You know, and I think that that voluntary aspect of is the trauma voluntarily inflicted on you that you're doing it for a purpose or is it out of your control and society and others are putting that trauma on you? So I'm conscious of time. Um, is there, we've covered quite a lot of ground. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Obviously, listeners, there'll be there's links to uh, to Jack's uh, book and the website and stuff uh, and socials uh, in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to share with us, Jack? Yeah, I just I, I think my biggest, you know, I mean, like we all have different ideas, and you know, we're all over the board adoptees in, in general, you know, and. And I can be all over the board. I can look at things as very positive and very negative. And I try to, in my book, I try to, you know, express those feelings as I had them and how I had them. You know, but I think the bottom line is that adoptees need to be involved in the process. You know, that if adoption is going to be something that we do, you have to take the opinions and the the experiences of adoptees and look into them deeper um, and get opinions, not just you know, talking heads who have, you know, they, they have a conflict of interest. You know, therapists want it to be traumatic because then it earns them more patience. You know, politicians want it to be traumatic or want it to be whatever for their constituency. So I think adoptees, you know, across the board, happy adoptees, angry adoptees, you know, whatever you classify yourself as, we need to be involved in the situation much more than what we have been historically. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, some powerful stuff there, especially the neuroscience bit. Um, uh, we've never got anywhere near that. So thank you very much for bringing that uh, to the show. And uh, and and your philosophical and practical side. And obviously, you, you, your brain is highly tuned. You don't you don't you don't become a, pedi- a pediatric surgeon without having a, a bright brain. So thank you for bringing that to. Uh, uh, to, to the show and thank you for everything that you do for the kids you know as a as a surgeon yeah thank thank you thank you simon i appreciate it but, but what i would say is i may be intelligent as an orthopedic surgeon but when it comes to the adoption phenomenon and the adoption complexity i think a lot of us are really you know mental midgets when it comes to figuring it out because it's it's complex it's deep um and a lot of it is subconscious which is unaccessible to most of us yeah Wow! Thank you. You 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 nailed it. Um, Thank you, listeners. We'll speak to you again very soon. Cheers. Goodbye.